Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are so glad that you're on this journey with us in season number two. So far we've covered a number of random passages and we're about to add to the random by jumping into a book of the Bible that we haven't looked at in season two, but I'm sure it will come up again sometime because it's one of the more foundational books of the Bible. It's the book of Exodus. And so we are going to be checking out chapter two early in the story of Exodus. So Lisa, take it away with verse 11. Uh, And this is Everett Fox's translation. Now it was some years later, Moshe grew up. He went out to his brothers and saw their burdens. He saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man one of his brothers. He turned this way and that way, and seeing there was no man there, he struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. He went out again on the next day, and here, two Hebrew men scuffling. He said to the guilty one, for what reason do you strike your fellow? He said, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moshe became afraid and said, surely the matter is known. Pharaoh heard of this matter and sought to kill Moshe. But Moshe fled from Pharaoh's face and settled in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. This passage is ripe for Midrash, um, which is what we talk about what we're doing, where we're asking questions that are um, sometimes a little bit below the surface of the obvious questions. Because when we only ask the obvious questions, this passage seems a little, uh, maybe a little boring, (laughs) maybe a little like easy to understand. So let's ask those sort of simple questions first. What, how would you summarize what's happening in this passage? Just on that base, simple level. I mean, on that kind of like literal, very base level, you have Moses who is born an Israelite and now he's being raised in the palace seemingly of the Pharaoh or raised in the Royal court. and he starts to either he becomes aware of, or he actually starts maybe exploring more his heritage, his ethnicity. And he sees the harm being done to people like him, the Jewish people who are slaves in Egypt. And he takes, he takes a moment to uh, have a little vengeance upon an Egyptian who's harming one of his, his brothers. And then realizes that's going to come back to haunt him. And so um, Pharaoh's going to be after him. So Moses runs for it. I I feel like you already started getting a little deeper, like you couldn't help yourself, Jason. Okay. (laughs) But you might not even know you were doing it. I didn't even know I did that. So my bad. (laughs) 
Well, because there's a question that is maybe embedded in it of how does Moses know that the Hebrews are his brothers? Hmm. He's presumably been raised in the palace his whole life. What does it mean for him to be walking out that door and seeing the Hebrew people as his brethren um, when that's not where he was raised? There's a whole lot of questions we can look at in, in that. But maybe we go back and we just think about this sort of way it begins with it, like it came to pass. So we have some passage of time. Moses walks out of the, the palace doors, essentially. How many times, if you're Moses in your life, would you have walked out of the palace doors? Maybe like hundreds, thousands every day or I don't know. Maybe never. I, I mean, I can't. I don't know which which answer it could be. Um, I'm guessing if it's more than once, it's going to be a lot. But otherwise, um, it could be like, you know, not much at all. If if it's a really sheltered existence, I'm I'm not really certain. Yeah, there's a there's a way that I think maybe even in either case, there's sort of a way that this is an ordinary day until it's not. We're like, we're not Moses, but we also have these moments in time where everything suddenly changes. Even though we didn't wake up that morning knowing everything would change. Like it starts out with this, it came to pass, Moses was grown and he went out. That's a presumably like he didn't necessarily go out to try to change everything, but this is going to be the thing that completely changes the trajectory of his life on this day he gets up and when he goes out and so then there's this sort of like diving into these layers of what's different about this day what is it that is happening in him what is it that's happening around him that is making this day different from other days and i think we can a lot of us can relate to that like you know it could be a day that starts out normally and we get a phone call that somebody is sick or something's happened and the rest of our lives is going to be radically different, or it could be, you know, maybe in a more positive route, it could be, you know, a normal day and and you get a phone call and someone's like, Hey, I've always thought about you in this role and I'm starting this thing and I want you to come do it with me. What do you think? And suddenly, yeah, your life takes a turn and you, you know, 20 years later, you're going to be like, I, if I wouldn't have said yes to that phone call or answered that, who knows who I'd be right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I kind of, so at some level with the way that even that first sentence starts out, I can, I can understand. Yeah. How it, maybe there wasn't an intention for that day, but that day ended up being defining. Mm-hmm. Well, Moses also kind of rides this interesting line <clears throat> of being somebody who is, um, is being born Hebrew um, and being raised in an Egyptian household. And so like he both has privilege and doesn't. He rides a tension between understanding what it's like to be on the outside, but also having some of the things that come along with being on the inside. And so in some ways, like probably the only place that Moses really can have authority is over Hebrew people being in the, like living in Pharaoh, like, cause it's clear. Cause if he could just, I mean, if he was fully Egyptian, he could probably kill the Egyptian and nobody'd care. Hmm. 
nobody would have like nobody would have cared but like he's got to do it sneaky so that just seems to say to me like that he's got he's got some power but he doesn't have all the power and so it's like there's a day that he recognizes that maybe there's something for him to do but he's also not done anything yet and so that first his first effort and like trying to right the wrong doesn't go well Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a way to think about this passage is like Moses is awakening. And how often our awakenings are are a little sloppy. <laughs> like like Moses is having something happen to him where he's he's got privilege but he doesn't have all the privilege. He's he's Hebrew but he's not. He's Egyptian but he's not. And there's something happening on this day where he's trying something, but it comes out kind of wrong. It comes out kind of messy. And how often is that what happens for us? Like we want to think of those awakening moments as like, suddenly I walked out the door and I said yes to that job. I took that phone call. My whole life changed. And it was just an upward trajectory from that moment versus like it went upward and then I crashed and then I circled around a few times and then I took a couple of steps and then I realized that was the wrong turn. And then I like, this is everything changed, but not in a forward and upward trajectory. Everything changed. Well, and if I can just like even pause for a second, and maybe this is the elephant in the room that many people who are listening to this are going to be having in mind as well, is that we already we have so many depictions of this story, right? We have the Prince of Egypt, we have the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, we have so many different iterations of this that for me have always kind of impacted how I read the scriptures, to be honest. And so whether it's the Charlton Heston version, Ten Commandments, or whether it's the Prince of Egypt, in both of those instances, Moses is depicted as like a prince, right? He is like in charge and is this like almost like second or third or fourth in command of like everything under Pharaoh. And he's, you know, seen as a son of Pharaoh. And it's this like very prominent role. And as Lisa pointed out, um, why would he be scared of harming anyone if he was that high up? Why wouldn't Pharaoh protect him as opposed to want to kill him? Um, I mean, the sentence is, and then Pharaoh wanted to kill him. I mean, it's like we went from, you know, the movie depiction of like, oh, you're like a son to me to now I'm going to kill you. And that's a fascinating switch, Um, especially if Moses had all this power. Why wouldn't he just change the way they practice uh, management of people? Right. I mean, if he had all this power, couldn't he have done something about the system of slavery? But I think Lisa's more accurate in saying, I don't think he had much power because here he is. He can't change anything. He's going to he's, he's going to get basically hunted by Pharaoh. And so I think he's much more marginalized than he maybe even realized. And like you said, it's kind of a waking up moment to who he is. Um, and, and like I said, those movies don't always help us in that because they they depict it so differently. Well, and I wonder if if we could say, even if he does have power, because he might have a lot of power, how is that power precarious? Because he's not a part of the dominant powerful group and he has gotten that power through sort of adoption into the family, how does that place him in a position? Like I think about in our society, I think about things like for myself being a woman, there are ways that I have to show up better than a man because my position is more precarious. I have power and privilege. 
in so many ways, but I, it's also then really easy for me to mess it up or really easy to lose it. And then I think about how that happens with race. I think about those intersectionalities where if it's, if you are a woman of color and you have, you're fighting both patriarchy and racism, you might have gained some power in your life, but how is that power just more fragile? Um, because of society's higher expectations of you having to like, quote unquote, earn the power you have and not make any mistakes as compared to it being given. So what if he, what if he was in charge of lots of things, but all it took was for this one wrong move for fair to be like, you're done. Mm, Um, You have proven right. What I already thought was true about you, that you're just one of those people. And how does that, that even, whether, again, we don't know exactly what's true. This is a midrash. We're wondering what the story is, but it's ways that that sort of takes the story across time and space to say, what, how are people in power like pharaohs still today? You made a wrong move. You're out. How is this like our awakenings and the messiness of that? How might this help us see those who have precarious power and those who have like privilege, like full privilege, like Pharaoh? Um, And how does all of that translate into how we're seeing things? That's good. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, I'm finding myself at at a loss at some level because as a white male, it's it's really hard for me to, I, I, I don't even want to say put myself in the shoes of someone who doesn't, cause, cause that it sounds like I could do that. And, and I, and I just can't. And, and so I'm finding myself really curious to continue learning from the two of you and, you know, wanting to explore this passage or hear from people who maybe have a different um, experience in life where they would hear Moses's story and resonate with that, that sense of being like not having the power, but being connected to it and, mm. and how that feels, because I, I, I don't know how that feels. Mm. Well, I think in some way, Jason, though, you, you do, there are ways to enter into the story, even if you have all the, For all sure. the markers of privilege. <laughs> For sure. Cause in some ways there are always going to be spaces where we don't, I mean, unless and like, unless we're in part of the, um, there's an elite group of people that really probably have the most power. <laughs> most of us don't sit in those spaces. Us three aren't sitting in those spaces. I feel, feel okay saying that. Um, you guys don't know my last name is actually Bezos. Is that, <laughs> Sorry. Is that what you're trying to say? That, that, that yes. thing. Because um, what I was thinking about is it reminds me of, in some ways, it reminds me of when I started to do some of the work uh, around racism and like, what is mine to do? Like how, like, if I think about like trying to take on the justice issues in the world, um, and I feel real passionately about how we treat incarcerated people. But if I try to like, think about like, well, I want to change the whole system. I probably wouldn't do anything, but also if I just start taking things and <laughs> swinging, like abolish the whole thing, get done. I'm not saying that's not wrong or right. But if I don't actually spend any time like figuring some stuff out, uh, bull in a china shop. And I feel like Moses was like bull in a china shop moment, like not your best day, but like, it's like, I feel like Moses is wrestling. Like he's got a, there's a rumbling of like, something is not right. And I need to do something. And it's just not clear what to do. And for a lot of us, 
we stay stuck. Like we don't ever exit those palace doors. We don't ever go out and like, look, like when you go out your doors, what do you see? And then mm-hmm. how do you decide what to do? Mm-hmm. And so I think there are ways to like jump into Moses's story. Um, that's not exactly what he's doing, but in ways that we can acknowledge, like we do, like we all, we do have some power. Moses had some power. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's, let's then like do the slow road and go back to verse 11 from what Lisa just said, because there's this question of when you step out the palace doors, what do you see? So Moses steps out the palace doors and he sees what? Burden. They're burdens. So whatever he has or hasn't seen before, what is clear to him on this day is their sebala, their burdens, their forced labor, their heavy loads. It's from sabal, which means to bear a load, to carry something heavy. What is suddenly clear to him is the burden of slavery that is on the people group that he sees when he walks outside his door. That is what's clear to him in that moment. That's what he sees. And when we think in scripture about this word ra'ah, to see, it's not always just what it means to see with our physical eyes. It's actually often not just what it is to see with our physical eyes. It's what are we choosing to see with the eyes of our heart? What are we choosing to see with eyes of faith? Seeing is not neutral. Seeing shows something about where we're looking, about what we're, what we're looking for, about what we're open to. So he's seeing. Almost like what he's taking in, in that moment, like. Cause you, you can, you can see something, but then you can like take in something and like, it really, it really internalizes with you. Right. Like how often do I walk out my door and not see things? There's plenty that I could see that I don't see. I don't see. Um, I mean, even to the point, like in silly ways, like my, this happened last week. I, I, I we do this program called misfit market, which is, um, like produce, it's like, it's like an imperfect food, it's like imperfect produce, but it gets delivered to your door. I was out of town and both of my boys walked past the box of produce on the front door and left it sitting outside and it all froze because they didn't see it because they know that I bring boxes in. And so it didn't register to them to see a box at the front door because it's not their job to see a box at the front door. It's mom and dad's job to see a box at the front door. So it was there, they saw it, but they didn't see it because they didn't think it was their job to see it. And how much do we not outgrow that (laughs) as we move beyond childhood? Like, it's not my job to see that. Therefore I walk past it. I don't notice it. I don't take in what's mine to do because I get too overwhelmed by that seeing. Well, it's like that moment. I think you're, you're bringing this up with your with your kids because there's that moment sometimes you have with your kids where, you know, you might be doing the dishes or doing the laundry or doing something routine that you do all the time, and then they kind of look at you sideways one day and they go, "Do you do this every day?" And you're like, "Yes, I do the dishes every night." How do you think you have a clean bowl for cereal every morning? And then they kind of go, "Wow." Okay. And then of course, like the next day they completely forget and they don't say thank you ever again, but there's that like moment of they're actually seeing what's happening right in front of them, even though it's there all the time. 
Yeah. I mean, I also think I'm in on a deeper level. I think about what Lisa brings to us all the time on this podcast with the conversation about incarcerated people. Most of us don't see that it is right in front of us. The justice system is in front of us, but because if we're not impacted by it, we don't tend to see it um, until somebody is helping us see it. And then, then it's hard to not see. Like once we start opening to something, we can see more and more about it. But if nobody opens that door, we don't see. Well, there's, I mean, when we think about the Moses story with that, like he, he sees their burdens and he sees same, same word. He, he sees an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. That would be something, again, you would see every day. You would, if it's, if it's a part of a system of slavery an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew isn't an occurrence, it's a normal but it's hitting him differently. He's re- he's receiving it differently. He's processing it differently today than he has processed it on other days. But certainly at a previous time in his life, he has seen an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew because that is what the powerful would do to those they have enslaved. That would be not abnormal. But now he's getting involved. He's seeing something. He's responding to something. This is a different way of seeing than he's seen it before. Okay, so this idea of growing up or or grown um, is not, there are words that could be used for getting older. That's not what's used here. The word used here is gadol. Gadol is become great, become important, become powerful. Um, It is the word that is first used in Genesis 1.14 for the sun and the moon, the great gadol lights of the sky. So it came to pass that when Moses became great, he went out. And so there's this question even there, of what does it mean to become great? What has happened in Moses's life that he would be described as Gadol? This is the word in Genesis 12 used for the blessing of Abraham to become a great nation. Um, it's a good Gadol. Um, So if we translate this as it came to pass when Moses had become great, Hmm. how does that affect how we see what's happening in verse 11? Well, to me, it makes me wonder about the writing of the passage and what they're maybe trying to say about Moses. Because I mean, this is an oral tradition. This story has been passed down and passed down and passed down. And they're putting, you know, they're putting it on parchment and they're now writing it. And there's a part of me that wonders, like, what are they trying to communicate about Moses? Because they probably already all know the story of Moses, right? They know the story. Moses is the one that's going to hear from God in the burning bush. He's going to, you know, lead the people out of Egypt over the, you know, the Red Sea. So if this is his waking up moment, if this is his moment where he starts the transition to become Moses, like the actual kind of superhero Moses, I wonder if talking or, or labeling him that way as is, is an indication of um, like, okay, get ready. Like this is, this is the beginning of something. He's, he's, he's great now. What does it mean to be great? He sees us. Mm. Like he, he's taking it in now and, and that's the beginning of the journey. Ooh. Okay. What if, what if 
what if taking it in is the beginning of the journey and taking it in is that sign of greatness? That's what I hear you saying. Yeah. Which is then shifting it when the writer is saying that, like, is the writer talking about inner greatness or outer greatness? Because you could also read it as he's grown into his job at the palace. He's become powerful and mighty. Um, And maybe it's both. Maybe there's an inner journey and an outer journey of greatness that's happening. Right. And then if it is the outer journey, if it is the outer journey of him, you know, attaining more power and becoming this influential person in the community, then maybe it's setting up just how much he has to lose by what he's about to do and, Mm -hmm. and walk away from it and run away from thinking about how much violence is happening around Moses right now. Like there is, um, you have the, like Egyptians, um, is beating, like Moses kills somebody. He sees two Hebrew people fighting. Um, there's all this stuff. And so I'm actually wondering if like for Moses, part of the, part of the journey means he has to be pulled out of all this violence in order to get the perspective of how to come in and not solve the problem with violence. Cause all Moses knows at this point is that violence is what makes this work. Right. Yeah. And there is, I mean, not to be, there's some violence coming. Um, but I'm also curious about like what it, means for Moses to be pulled out of that violent atmosphere for the next 40 years. Like there's something else that's happening too. Like there's something because like, there's just so much violence. I'm just right now, I'm just thinking about like what it would be like to live in the space that there's just that kind of violence. You're surrounded by it all the time. Well, I mean, to me, that's partly a question of the empire, right? Like, and that goes across how are empires violent? And how is it so much the water that you're swimming in that you might not even notice the difference unless you're taken to another environment where that violence isn't common, um, where there is another way that things are happening. Um, right. It's like if in America, some of it, like well, we're a violent country, but also like we're a capitalist, like we have like capitalism. And so like to go to a place where capitalism isn't the thing that's ru- ruling everything, there's a jarring thing that happens when you're suddenly pulled outside of the consumerism, um, like when you go to another country that just doesn't have the same thing going on, you suddenly are like shocked. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, who knew? Well, and what you're taking us to, I think is like, when we think about who Moses is and what God's hand is in orchestrating the deliverer, there's this real like beauty of formation happening to say, how did Moses have to be a Hebrew in order for someday to come and talk to the Hebrew people about how God had appeared to him and be taken seriously. So he had to be a Hebrew in order to talk to the people who were being enslaved about being freed. But he also had to be connected to Pharaoh's household in order to someday go back to the palace and knock on the door and have somebody answer. If he were only a Hebrew, he wouldn't have the capacity to talk to Pharaoh and no one would listen to him. So he had to somehow be both a Hebrew and an Egyptian in order to come back and play this role as a deliverer. But how did he also have to be neither in order to understand how to lead both groups of people out from Egypt and into the wilderness? How did he need to spend time living in the wilderness for a while first? So there's a way that he kind of has this, his journey gives him everything he needs, Um, but it's a process and it's long. 
um, there's another point in time where it says that he was, um, he was 40 years old at this moment in time in Exodus 2.11. Um, I think that's actually in Acts where, where they say that he was 40. Acts I always forget where it is. <laughs> um, that he's 40 when he leaves the castle. And then he spends 40 years being a shepherd in Midian. And he's 80 at the burning bush. And then he goes back and then he leads the people for 40 years in the wilderness. And he's 120 when he dies. It's Acts 7, verse 23, for people who are really curious. <laughs> Again, so how did, you guys just showing off. I love it. <laughs> so, right. But so how did he need that time of 40 years inside the system of the empire to really understand it? But how did he also need the 40 years in Midian after this story to really understand outside of the empire? And how did those things get pieced together in his role as a deliverer? Which to me, one of the things that points to is just how much part of the empire is this instant gratification. I really feel that like, like, and it's even what Moses is in right now. of like, oh, I see the injustice. I need to do something about it right now. And where God takes him is actually, yes, you're going to do something about it, but not for another 40 years. Um, you need, you need 40 more years of formation first, and then I'm going to take you back in to do that thing. And I feel the tension, even as I say that, because when there's injustice, there is an urgency. Right. Yeah. And, and, but if we think about, if we think about like the justice movement that's happening now is not started now, mm-hmm. this start, like what we're in now, like it's been 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. Like none of or these more, things, right. Or more, right. It's like, it's been a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause empire just doesn't give stuff up like that. Right. It takes patience and, and this, and something in Moses is like, oh, I got it. And I, I think there's something in this that it's easy to get swept up for me in the, how cool is this story? How, you know, cause I learned about it so young. This is one of the first stories that, you know, that you learn about. And, you know, and then you watch it during, you know, Easter week or something, whenever it was on ABC growing up, you know, you watch the 10 commandments and, you know, my dad's like, oh, we got to watch this movie. It's about the Bible. It's great. You know, and you just get so swept up in it all being, like I said, almost like a superhero story and like, it's the origin story. And then here's the moment. And then they, you know, they cross the Red Sea and then they get the 10 commandments and it's this unbelievable, you know, story. But there's a generation of slaves there's 40 years it's a generation who are waiting that's after 400 years of slavery of waiting of crying out and and i don't think we pause to mourn that to to grieve that this is the this is this is how change happens and I think Lisa, you're highlighting that that's still how change happens. And there's a, there's a part of me that gets energized by like, okay, we can do something like there's all this foundation and there's all this work and there's so many great authors and there's so many, you know, people we should be listening to and, and highlighting their work. And, um, you know, and, and there's so much, there's so much momentum right now. And yet <laughs> it's so much grief of like, yeah, but what happened in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and the, 
the aughts and the everything else that we we still had George Floyd get murdered. And it's it's such a grief. Well, I think it's also worth noting if we're going to like talk about um, we're going to talk about criminal justice things like Moses is with like he is a murderer. Yes. And he's a fugitive. He is both. And that's never resolved. Like just to be clear, Moses is never like put in prison and does time. But that is that is the person who's going to do the liberating. And I'll be very honest, the people who are most compelling when it talk when we're talking about uh, prison reform are people who have lived inside the system, who understand the system and understand what's happening. And we, for the life of us, cannot figure out how to listen to the voices that are telling us this is what it's like being here. Right. Like we have to understand the posture of listening from people who understand the thing that we can't understand because we're not in it. And I just think like, for me, like this is that space of like, there is some real stuff about who Moses is and we don't, Moses is a hero. Father, like, I mean, is Moses. <laughs> like there's, there's some things to hold with who Moses is and how we listen to him. And I think there is some, insight into what we can learn from people who have some of those experiences well and we we can think about too like we we tend to have um like what are our qualifications quote unquote for what a good leader looks like um and what moral choices all, all sorts of things and like what are god's qualifications for what a good leader looks like so moses is who god chose but would he be who we would have chosen if we were in that time and place, if we knew him to be a murderer, if we knew him, we maybe would trust, maybe we would be Egyptian and we wouldn't trust him because he was Hebrew. Maybe we would be Hebrew and not trust him because he was Egyptian. Maybe we'd be from either of those groups and not trust him because he's a murderer. Or he's not, he's not an eloquent speaker. Yes. So maybe we don't want to listen to him. He doesn't speak the way that we want him to speak. Mm -hmm. Like we look at history looks back and sees the hero. But would the people, the people at the time took some convincing, like when he goes back, the people are like, wait, who are you? And Moses is like, who are you? Um, it wasn't obvious to everybody else that he was the one that was going to be liberating them. His history is much easier. That, that sort of hindsight is 2020 mm-hmm. when you see who Moses is versus at the time he had to fight for it. He had to fight to be heard. And he stayed flawed. I love there's this sort of, here's a midrash on verse 12. So he looks this way and that, and he, and he kills the Egyptian. And what does he do with the Egyptian? Hides him in the sand. Okay. So when we think about what happens, like that's an interesting phrasing of things, right? Why is it telling us what he's doing with the body? Like that's, I don't, I can't think of another place in scripture where we're like, we're not often told what people do with a body. Like it would usually just say he killed the Egyptian. Why are we being told what he did with the Egyptian's body? There must be a reason that we're being told that. What happens when you like, why would he hide something in the sand? Let's ask that first. So the, the word is Taman. So it's, he hides, conceals, buries, covers over the body. So what is that action, first of all? Well, well you know effort. what's wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, what else? I don't know what other options 
do you have for concealment in the desert? <laughs> hey, but, but even then not knowing it's wrong or wanting to conceal that shows us something about this sort of power question we were having. He doesn't just be like, so what if I killed him? I'm from he's the not, palace. He's not putting the head on a stake. He's not doing anything like to prove, to show everybody, to teach everybody a lesson. Mm-hmm. He could leave the body. He could display the body. He could be doing lots of things. He's hiding it. So that shows us something about the story to say, okay, there's something in him that wants to hide this thing that he's done, that wants to conceal it. What happens when you bury things in sand? Well, sand is sand is pretty shifty. And okay. It's not exactly... Uh... I would imagine it's either the best place to hide something because of wind patterns and the way it's going to like bury it even deeper, or it's going to reveal it really quickly um, based on, uh, you know, climate and wind and all that other stuff. Okay. There's a couple things that happen, right? Sand is a little bit of a shifty place to hide something. Like it could be, it could be hidden forever or it could be revealed really quickly depending on the wind. Why can it still be revealed after it's been buried in it? If it gets wind solid, it's, it's, it's loose. It, yeah, there, it's not a, it's not something, it's not a foundational situation. You're not putting it in concrete or burying it under, you know, clay, you know, you're, it's, it's sand. I mean, which means what else is happening? We're like right there. What else is then happening? If it's not, if it's not burying it in soil or dirt or clay, what would, if I buried a body in soil, what would it do? What would the body Decompose. do? What does it do in sand? I've had no idea. I've never buried a body in <laughs> sand before. I've done the others. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> now I don't know, like somebody should science check this, but what, right. That's what the the internet's for. So yes, fact check this, those listening in, but sand preserves, it doesn't decompose. Like when we think about like artifacts, that's why they can unbury, like they can reveal like so much in the Middle East, so much in Egypt still exists from so long ago because the dry sand climate like preserves things. So there's a way he's hiding it in something that won't, it's not a reliable place to hide it. He's he it's it could be revealed again. The body's being reserved, like preserved in certain ways. It's not going to be it's not really disposing of it. Point being, when we think about who Moses is, this moment of impulsive anger is the thing that comes back to haunt him in his life. We see him burying it. We don't see him dealing with it. Um, And how is that like us um, where we we think, oh, that was just that one time. Um, but when we think about later on, like when Moses strikes a rock and God didn't tell him to strike the rock, that's another study for another time. It's very much like Exodus too. It's like, it's this thing that he buried without dealing with and he buried it in a place that didn't actually take care of it. And so it's preserved in him. It gets revealed again by the shifting winds. Um, because it's an ongoing struggle. I really do think this is reminiscent of so much of what we go through and, and kind of what it means to be human is that we have those things in life where 
we want to deal with them, but we don't really. And so we find the quickest, easiest way to pretend like the job is taken care of. And there's a part of us that knows it could come back to haunt us, but we just kind of cross our fingers and really hope it doesn't. And we really got to deal with it. And I feel like Moses really does want to deal with the atrocity that he sees. And he responded in a snap, quick way, realized it was wrong, tried to cover it up so that he could move on. But this is, this is harder work than that. This is, this is bigger work than that. It doesn't just take uh, uh, an instant reaction. Um, you know, it doesn't just take a Facebook post or, you know, a comment in order to change the systemic problems going on around you. You actually have to like do the long, hard work of justice. There's a way that like what, what you're getting at there is like this narrative. And we think about Moses, it, it, like to be looking at the passages, both from the systematic way, like how is this showing us something about what it is to engage in the work of system justice? But it's also like there's a tension to also still keep it individual and to keep it about Moses and in keeping it about Moses, keep it about us. That when we over elevate Moses as this hero leader, we don't see our own humanity in Moses and Moses's humanity in us to say there's a way that he is a normal guy. Um, there's a way that he's a flawed guy. And there's a way that the, his story is what we do as well. And how can we see what we're burying in the sand? And how can we look for the inner work that we have to do in order to do that outer work from a healthier place? And how can we be moved to see the burden of our brothers and do that outer work? Like, like how can we keep looking at the whole thing um, and not just make it about one or the other? Because there's another way of seeing this passage when we think about it on this individual level. Can I just respond to that really quick? Steph? Yeah. I think that we get caught up in hero worship in our culture and maybe throughout human history. I don't know, but it's so hard to imagine being the next Moses. It's so hard to imagine being the next Martin Luther King Jr. It's so hard to imagine being the next, you name it. But they had those moments in human history the exodus, right? The, the march from in Selma, like in all the civil rights stuff, like it wasn't just one person. It wasn't just an individual. It was a collective of people who saw themselves as worthy of participating in a new understanding of what it means to be human or a, a new recognition of how to live in society together or the need to. And, you know, the, one of my favorite museums that I've been to in, in the South is the Foot Soldiers Museum in Selma, where they take, um, they take molds of, of people's feet. If they, if they were part of the march, um, one of the three different marches um, that were attempted from Selma to Montgomery. And so this, this museum is lined with all these molds of people's feet that were representative, not just of the leaders that led the march, but of all the people that sacrificed so much to try to um, help people vote. And so I think it's such a beautiful um, understanding that we all have to find our way into this because we all have to show up to this. And so by humanizing Moses in this moment, we're able to identify with him. And it takes that hero off the shelf a little bit 
and kind of says, where's the Moses in me? Not to like grab a microphone and start shouting into the wind or whatever, but like, where do I get to do the hard work and then participate in the movement of justice that's needed? Because it needs all of us. It doesn't just need one great leader. It needs every single person to put their feet on the ground and to get involved in, in this. Well, and when we, we jumped into verse 11, but Exodus two begins not with Moses, but with his mother and with his sister and with Pharaoh's daughter. Like mm-hmm. he wouldn't be here without the heroic acts of those. Shifra and Pua. And Shifra and Pua at the end of chapter one. <laughs> like there are five strong women that actually come before this moment in time. And we often forget their role in the story. If Shifra and Pua hadn't been defining, defying Pharaoh, if Moses' mother hadn't put him in an ark, not a basket in the ark, whole lot there for what she's doing. If Moses's sister hadn't stood at a distance and watched, if Pharaoh's daughter hadn't decided to disobey the edicts of her own father by not killing this Hebrew boy and actually raising him as her own, like there, this didn't come from nowhere. And then Moses had to choose to rise up into that legacy that he was born into. And on this day, in his greatness, he walks out, he sees, and he murders. And the people had to participate in their own liberation. It wasn't like they weren't all recognizing what God was up to. You know, like they were sacrificing animals and putting the blood over the door and they were ready to go. And they were, you know, they were recognizing that this is going to take all of us to do this and to, to, to be liberated, not just one person or, you know, Moses and Aaron or whoever it, it was everybody. And I, I think one of the interesting things when we're looking at Exodus two, and we're thinking about the actions of Moses's mother and his sister and Pharaoh's daughter and of Moses here in 11 through 15 that we read is God's voice hasn't been heard yet. Like when we think about that question of what is mine to do, we want it to be that every time God says what to do. Nowhere in the beginning of this chapter did God say, at least what's written down in the story to Moses's mother, you should do this with him. And to his sister, go stand by the bank. Like God was not directing the way we want God to direct sometimes. It was people figuring out what is my, what's the best I can do in this circumstance. Sometimes getting it right sometimes getting it wrong. Um, but how does that become a part of it as well Is do we trust, do we, do we allow ourselves to try to make mistakes, to have successes and to, to get engaged? Well, I think to, I mean, to push a little bit on Moses, like, I, cause I'm always struck in this passage. Okay. Does anybody watch Ozark? Yes. I, okay. I started to, and we didn't, <laughs> didn't stick with it. Um, I'm not making a show recommendation, but what I'm saying is there are these things where like, I like, the, <laughs> like his Hebrew brethren are like, uh, you're going to call us out when you're, you're the dirty birdie. Like you did it like, and it comes right after it. Moses is like good Like he's great. And I just kind of wonder about that. Like the reminder of like, you got to kind of check yourself if you're feeling like you're strong and you got it and you know the answer. 
Cause like mo- his people call him right out. And I feel like our kids do that to us. There's lots of different places. Like there's this way that like, you've got to kind of, you can be good old. You can be great. You can be strong. You can be big. But if you're, if you're, I don't, it's not like you're too much, but like, if you don't have a little bit of humility or like a little bit of like, hmm, is this the right way? I'm going to check in. <laughs> like, is this actually what the Hebrew people would like me to do? Mm-hmm. Or am I just doing the thing that I want to do? Mm-hmm. And like, it feels like that is just an invitation. The very beginning of Moses's like journey of like, okay, pause. Like, I think it makes him better able than to like pause and hear God or like really follow what God is telling him to do in certain ways because of this moment, because it sucks getting called out. Like it, it sucks when your kid, the, the, the ones that you're responsible for raising, like calls you out on a thing that you do when you're trying to tell them to not do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. like I hate that part I hate the oh yeah do as I say not as I do well and Moses at this point is responding kind of like an Egyptian would right he's reactionary he's quick he thinks he can change things he thinks he can cover things up he thinks that there's no consequences for him and then he goes to the Israelites and he calls them out and I think he's stepping into a whole new system He's stepping into a whole new way of being human, a whole new existence, and he's got no knowledge. He's got no experience. And even if, even if he's right in saying, why are you hitting each other? That's not going to get where you want to go. And he could be right, but he's not earned the right to enter into that space because he hasn't ever listened. He hasn't ever sat with. He hasn't ever put himself in that place of being that vulnerable to the elite of the world or to the the oppressors of the world. And so he, even in what he thinks might be the right way, you don't get to speak into it yet. And I think, Lisa, you're right. And Steph, you guys are right that like that work that he does in the wilderness, that humility work to be able to listen and to be able to hear is going to be the important work that he does so that he can come back and actually lead from a place of humility, as opposed to a place of like, in a way, human wisdom. Well, and I, I think there's this way in what you're bringing forward, Jason, of like, there's, there's a way to see Moses having an identity crisis in this passage. Um, and what he's doing and how is sort of his actions uh, sort of showing that of like, again, as somebody who was a Hebrew, but raised in the palace, is he Egyptian or is he Hebrew? So he walks out of the palace one day and he, he sees an Egyptian um, smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he's seeing himself as a Hebrew in that passage And he then decides, he looks this way and that he decides to kill the Egyptian. But then when he goes to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people aren't owning them as one of theirs. (laughs) They're not saying you're our brother. They're saying, who are you to do this to us? And so when Moses flees to the wilderness, you can sort of see him asking, well, who am I? Because now I seem to neither be an Egyptian nor a Hebrew. Um. Because I, and so there's a way to sort of see this playing out as a part of his own identity crisis. Um, 
And as a part of perhaps why it was then messy was because he had this unresolved inner work to do of who he was and how he was going to then bring forward the work that was his to do. And I think that can happen if I can speak to a moment of, of my own privileged position in life of trying to be a person that's about justice and, and reconciliation and trying to recognize how the systems of our world are marginalizing and oppressing people. It's, it's very easy to think, oh man, there are solutions just right there. We just got to like get on board and we got to do it. And, and like, it's, it's, it's so possible. And, and then having to like check myself to be like, but I don't actually really know anything that I'm talking about. I've never experienced this before. I have to be a listener. I have to be someone who's willing to learn and grow and willing to participate and willing to show up and to offer my best, but to recognize that there's so much more to learn than there is to teach. And and that's not normal for me because every time throughout my entire life, I've been told lead, teach, lead, teach, lead, 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 teach. And I've never been told to like, shut up and to like, sit down and to, no, don't raise your hand. We don't need to hear from you right now. Like, that's just not normal for me. And so, um, yeah, that moment where you don't, and, and, and that, that, that moment can be very like, well, then who am I if I'm not leading and teaching? If I'm not saying something, then who am I? Because I've always been asked to say something. Right. Like who asked, they didn't ask Moses to get involved in this moment. He's inserting himself. He feels like he's doing good, but maybe that's not what was needed. I, to shrink it, like it's so appropriate to apply this to the justice conversations, but sometimes that also makes it feel super big and, and like, lofty. I'm going to relate it to this whole other thing because what happened in me when I like this way of teaching that we do at 40 orchards that we do on this podcast, when I was first exposed to it, I had an awakening. I had a moment where I walked out and I saw things differently. And the way I saw things differently, I was like, all teaching should be like this in all places. Like there is no form of teaching besides interactive question-based teaching. That was how I suddenly saw things, which means that when I went back to the church that I was leading at the time, my next sermon, I made an open mic sermon because I suddenly was ready to abolish all sermons because there is no room for a monologue anymore. Everything should be a dialogue. And it was terrible. It was so bad because I never paused to say, is that what the community wants? I have had an awakening. This is what I want, but I never paused. I just completely inserted myself in a non-humble way as the solution to their argument, as a solution to their problem. Like the, the two Hebrews in this passage are having a problem and, and Moses is inserting himself as the solution without asking them, what is the problem? Why are you fighting? He doesn't ask. He doesn't really try to get underneath what's going on. And, and how often do we do that, not just about justice, but in life, like where we insert ourselves without pausing and saying, but wait, what does the community need? Who is this group of people? Where are they coming from? This is who I am, is what I have to offer a match for what they need. 
Um, is there a way that I need to do some work to help them get to a certain place? That's not whatever it might be. It's just, I like, I didn't pause to ask a question first. I was just like, I now have a way and I will come and do this. And it was, it was, again, it was terrible. And, and I think, cause I also wasn't ready to bring it forward yet to like, just because I've had an awakening doesn't mean I'm ready to, to do it. It just means I'm ready to see it. Um, and I needed more time in that formation spot. I think a lot of us struggle with that sort of impulsivity of once we see things differently, there's a way we move to an action step too fast from the seeing. Or maybe like, maybe that's actually, but maybe it's okay. Right. Like in some mm-hmm. ways you gotta kind of, you gotta get in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you, if you wait around, well, if I waited around until I was certain I would never do anything <laughs> because for me to actually be certain takes a whole heck of a lot. So like, I got to kind of like, you do got to kind of kick it sometimes. Like I'm not advocating somebody killing somebody. I just want to be clear that that's not what I'm doing with Moses. <laughs> I am saying though that Moses, like he did need to do something. Like it had to shake it up. And sometimes, like, sometimes you got to get fired. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes you got to quit a job. Sometimes you got to leave. Sometimes things are not right. And like, and sometimes it's yours to stay and do the work. Sure. And sometimes the best thing you can go, like, that's the best thing you do. Just go. I, it's so interesting, like how life just consistently, like, it's like, you kind of just get offered, you get it offered multiple times. So like, yeah, if you can, if you can pause and integrate it a little bit better. It's great. And sometimes you got to make a mess of things and you got to clean it up. Um, probably not by burying it in the sand. <laughs> Um, like sometimes you got to own it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm struck though. I do think it's interesting that Moses asks the question because we always talk about like how important questions are. I mean, Moses, he doesn't say stop hitting, stop hitting each other. He, he does say, why are you hitting each other? <laughs> there, mm-hmm. It is an interesting way. But then I was wondering about like, oh, maybe it's the timing of when you ask your question. Mm-hmm. There is probably a time to ask the question. Maybe there's a better question. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like it's an interesting, I, don't know, I never like, the, I don't like being in the spaces of my life where I have to make the decision to leave. I don't like that space. It is hard space. It's painful space. Um, there's a lot of like coming to terms with like your mistakes and the things that you wish you would have done differently. Or um, sometimes it's like you wish everybody would appreciate you as you go. Turns out. That's not usually how that works either. <laughs> um, but those are like some of the best growth, like the, the best growth comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like the future that like, comes out of those spaces, but when you're in it, it sucks. It's just hard. And what if, I mean, what if there's grace in that for Moses of like that risk of doing something, that risk of making a mistake, again, not advocating that we kill somebody as a way of doing that um, means that he had to leave. Like, is there a way that actually that sort of impulsiveness is pushed towards the leaving because the leaving is ultimately what he had to do. And so in the end, that, that mistake still led towards this thing. Well, sometimes like sometimes the impulsivity is highlighting something that we're not even aware of yet. Like maybe he was already re- getting ready to leave. He just didn't even know it. Mm. Like maybe he was 
I mean, because he walked out and saw it, right? Like he's seeing something now and you can't unsee things, right? Once you see, you can't unsee. Once you hear, you can't unhear. And so now he sees it and he might not be aware that he's got to go, but instinctually he needed to do something and he should have just left. He should have just said, I can't be a part of this anymore. This is wrong. I need to go do something about it. I'm not ready to do something about it. I'm going to go be a shepherd. Now that would have been a really nice version of the story, but that's not how life is because sometimes our impulses react a lot quicker than our best thinking. And so here's the human Moses who is probably ready to leave, but doesn't know it yet. And he has an impulse, does the wrong thing, tries to cover it up, tries to enter into the other people's story that he's not invited into. And then he finally figures out, Oh, I have to go. I don't know who I am anymore. Mm. Like, that's what's happening now. And then he gets to have this time of preparation, this really humbling time um, where he can become who God has called him to be. Hmm. Sometimes it is best to be into that forced situation. Cause I also find like, I can, I can manipulate a story in my head, like why I'm staying, how to stay like certainty and a paycheck man, I can convince myself just about anything for that sucker. But like, sometimes like you need, (laughs) yeah, like I can convince myself of just about anything. So like actually being forced to like follow through is helpful for me. Right. I mean, because Moses, when we think about Moses leaving, he is leaving the seat of power in the most powerful empire in the world. Even if with that power is precarious, how we started the podcast, if he lives in the palace with Pharaoh, he lives in the most powerful house in the known world at that time. That is a big thing to walk away from, no matter how precarious your spot is there to walk from there into the wilderness of Midian. Well, thank goodness, Midian, like people are hospitable because he doesn't have anything with them either. (laughs) Right. He just runs just out. And to, to this point of like leaving, I just want to point to one more word that was a part of the ties into this part of the conversation is when he goes out from that on that day, the word used is that he yatsa, um, where it doesn't say in verse 11 that he walks out. He, it says he yatsa. Yatsa is the word, um, it's went out, which is to exit or to go forth. But that word yatsa is the word used in Genesis 1.12 for the plants, for the seed bringing forth plants from the ground. And it's also the word for exodus. It is not the word for walking. He exoduses that day from, uh, he becomes great and he exoduses, but that doesn't mean he knows where he's going. It doesn't mean he has the strength to leave, but something is, that's a part of that awakening. And that seeing is already exodusing. Um, there's already not room for him there, but it's going to make a little bit of a mess on the way out. Well, that's a good question to like, end with like, what, what are you exodusing or what do you need to exodus? Mm. and are you willing for it to be messy on the way out (laughs) yeah like what is already coming through the soil in your life that is actually an indication of what's more to come because that's what's going on with Moses is that he's walking away from something that was his everything because he doesn't know who he is anymore and if you're in that place of you don't know who you are anymore 
okay, like, yeah, maybe there's some seed that's germinating and you just need to figure that one out and process it out and walk it out because that may be the exact thing that you're going to grow into. May we have the courage. And just, just so you know, if you're in that spot and you're thinking like, that feels like me in my faith journey, there's, there's a bunch of us out in the wilderness. You're not alone. I'm doing like, us. There's, there's hospital, there's hospitality out here. Um, we'll welcome, welcome you with open arms. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Midian. <laughs> we should retitle our podcast. Welcome to Midian. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safety.